Matthew chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8, and then the Lord willing will be, go all the way to verse 13 in a little bit. It says, And getting into a boat, he, this is Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Now, last week we saw how Jesus healed the two men who had the demons in them, and he and his disciples get back in a boat, and they cross back over the Sea of Galilee. The scripture says here, to his own city. Now I'm going to give you a little, don't be in a quick rush to answer this question, but I'm going to give you a little quick quiz. What was his own city? Which city is this that is his own city? Galilee is not a city. Nazareth is where he was born and where he was raised. Well, not born, born in Bethlehem, but raised in Nazareth. It's Capernaum. It's Capernaum. And you're going to see that from Mark and Luke's account of this as well. Keep in mind, when the scripture says he returned to his own city, this is Capernaum where his ministry was headquartered, not Nazareth where he grew up. I can show you that. Go back to Matthew chapter 4. Back in chapter 4, look at verses 12 through 17. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, Now when he, this is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Then the, here's the prophecy, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he left Nazareth, and he moved, and pretty much his, he was headquartered most of the time of the three years in Capernaum. That's where he was. Now, he would make venues, if you will, or trips down into Judea every now and then, and ultimately that's how he died. But his city that he did his ministry from mainly was Capernaum. Now, does anybody else have any other reason why he, or have another reason from Scripture, why he left Nazareth? Wasn't that just that he had heard that John the Baptist had been beheaded? They didn't want him there. Go to Luke chapter 4. They had actually tried to kill him there in his hometown. In Luke chapter 4, look at chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And again, he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he, and he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say, say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. 
But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, if you remember, there's a time when he's in Judea that they tried to have him put to death, and he then leaves. But then when he goes back to Judea at the end of his ministry, everybody's like, why are you going back there? Last time we were there, they tried to kill you. Well, in Nazareth, they tried to kill him as well. And so he spent most of his time in Galilee, centered mainly in Capernaum. He would make trips, as you know, in different places. But his, when the scripture says here, and you'll see this from Mark's account and Luke's account as well. When the scripture here in Matthew 9 says he came to his own city, it's not Nazareth, it's Capernaum. All right. Now, there's something else I want you to see. The story that we're studying today is the exact same episode as the one recorded in Mark and Luke, but Matthew doesn't mention the hole in the roof. Some of you know what I'm talking about. If you remember his kids seeing the picture of the four men lowering their friend through the roof to get to Jesus, this is the exact same story. But Matthew doesn't record the hole in the roof. Now, last week we saw that Matthew recorded two demon-possessed men, and we also saw that he had two blind men, yet Mark and Luke only record one. Yet, when the other ones gave less detail and Matthew gave more, here Matthew gives less detail and the others give more. Let me just say something to you real quickly. This is one of the very awesome proofs of the reality of the truth of Scripture. Is if you know anything about doing law, law work, when the police are trying to get eyewitness reports, whenever they are word for word the same, it's a red flag to them. They're like, oh, they've rehearsed this. But when there's discrepancies, but they're the same, they realize, you know what? These people all saw the same thing. But if we were all, I know of a professor that used to always do this, where once during the year, he would have someone run through his classroom right in the middle of a lecture and do something crazy and then run out. And then he'd have everybody stop and write down what they saw. And it was interesting how some saw what color the shirt was, others didn't. Some thought the shirt might have been red, some might have thought it would have been blue. It was just, and he was using that to show that what you see in a flash isn't always accurate. But the fact that these all say the same story, it's obviously they're saying there's no things that, that disagree, but they bring out other little parts. Or one mentions this, another mentions that. This is the further proof of the reality of the truth of Scripture. The Holy Spirit, as we looked at last week, wrote this book, but He used men. He used men as He inspired them to write these words. So let's look quickly at Mark's account in chapter 2. And Luke's account in chapter 5, we'll go to Mark 2 first, verses 1 through 12. Because as you're going to see later on in our study, it'll be valuable for us to have read Mark's account and Luke's account. Because we'll get a fuller understanding as we study it. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when Jesus returned, or he returned to Capernaum, oh, there it is. After some days, it was reported he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they lit down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there 
questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. But now we see from Mark's account that these men actually made a hole in the roof and lowered him down through the roof to get to Jesus because there were so many people there. They heard that Jesus was there. There were so many folks, you couldn't even get into the house. In all my years of preaching, I've only had one time that I had an episode like this. And it's at that conference center that I'm going to be at this summer. And, and you're going to be going up there, Ray, as, as you know. And I'm going to see you there, hopefully, as well. Um, there's a chapel at this conference center. And one night, while I was teaching on the series on the book of Revelation, so many people came to the chapel. They opened the back doors of the sanctuary, because the sanctuary and the chapel filled up. All the chairs filled up. People were standing inside. And still many more people kept coming. They opened the back doors of the, the foyer, if you will, of this chapel. And they opened the windows. And people stood outside the windows, listening from the outside the building, which was a really cool experience. Nothing like what Jesus is dealing with here, because no one cut a hole in the roof to get to hear the rest of the message. So... But go to Luke 5. Go to Luke 5. And look at verses 17 through 26. And we see Luke's account. Luke 5, verse 17. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, who, and, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. That's an interesting little tidbit. And the power of the Lord was, sitting, was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lit him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when they, he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. So this is the story here in Matthew chapter 9 of the story where the men lower their friend through the roof. We're going to get to more of that in just a little bit, but I want to start pulling some things out of this story. The first thing I want to pull out besides what his own city was is we'll come back to when he saw their faith. We're going to come back to that in just a second. But look at verse 4. It says, but Jesus knowing their thoughts, Matthew chapter 9 verse 4, Jesus knowing their thoughts. I want to spend a little bit of time, not too much time, but I want to kind of reiterate some truth here so that we can grasp this. Jesus knew what they were thinking. Go to Psalm 139 with me and look at verses 1 through 4. I don't want to talk too much about the fact that Jesus knew what they were thinking. I want to talk to you about the fact that Jesus knows what you're thinking. Look what David says in Psalm 139 in verses 1 through 4. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Folks, I want this truth that we kind of know but don't know to sink in. Don't think he doesn't know how you really feel if you don't say it. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, don't say it. Well, do you think saying it's all of a sudden going to let God know how you're really thinking? He already knows how you feel. He knows your thoughts. And actually, if you'll look at the scriptures, you'll see Jesus actually intentionally pull out of people what's already in their hearts so that they'll deal with it. He knows it's there. He'll pull it out so that you'll acknowledge it and so that he can deal with it. So I don't want any of you thinking, well, I, I, you know, I thought some things, but I have never said it. Well, no, you have. God already knows it. He knows your heart. And that's okay. As you're going to see later on, he loves you. He's not mad. He, the fact that he knows your heart doesn't mean, oh, I know what they're thinking. I hate that person. No, he's not that way at all. Actually, he's wanting you to fess up. If you do a real study of the book of Job, and by the way, I'll just throw this out. I'm prayerfully praying about that being the next book we study after Matthew. I don't know, but I'm praying about it. But if you do a prayerful study of the book of Job, you'll notice that God is actually trying to pull out of Job some deeper issues. Yes, he responds amazing in the first couple of chapters, and we think, well, I would never respond like that. But the further it goes, the deeper issues start to come out of Job. And God's getting to that. So he knows your thoughts. Go over to Matthew chapter 12. You're in Matthew 9. Go to Matthew chapter 12. Look at verses 22 through 25. A lot of people said, well, I've thought about it. I haven't really done it. Well, the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Matthew chapter 12, look at verses 22 through 25. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Now you say, wait a minute, Jim. Why does it say he knows their thoughts when the scripture says they said these things? Can anybody answer that? They were saying it privately. It's kind of like when you guys whisper about me in the back of the room up there. <laughs> I'm not God. I can't hear you nor know your thoughts. But he can not only hear it, he can know your thoughts. So... Folks, it'd actually be good for you to acknowledge he knows. He knows. Go ahead. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. The word of God is living and active. Is that where you're going? Sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Yeah. Discern all the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Yep. Before his sight. Yep. Exactly. Jump over to the Gospel of John. This is important for where we're going next. I dealt with, he knew their thoughts before I dealt with when he saw their faith for this reason. I want you to see John chapter 2, and then we'll go back to him seeing, knowing their faith or seeing their faith. John chapter 2, look at verses 23 through 25.
In John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, it says, Now when he, this is again Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when, he, when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It's interesting. If you and I were to read verse 23, we'd say these people were saved. They believed in him when they saw, they believed in his name when they saw the miracles that he was doing. But then the next verse says they weren't saved. Why? Because he knew that even though they believed, it wasn't saving faith. It wasn't biblical belief. I'm going to show you in just a second. You can believe something and not be saved. So, as we just saw here in John 2 and also in our study in Matthew, Jesus also knows how much faith you really have. Go back to Matthew chapter 9 and take a look again at now verse 2. It says, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. He knows that they have faith. He knows that their faith is in him to do it, but not only that it's in him to do it, but that's he, he is who the scripture says he is. But how has that faith been evidenced to you and to me? Again, Jesus knows their faith. He can tell, he knows their hearts. He knows whether or not they really have faith. But for you and me, how are, what's an evidence from this story? Remember, Mark and Luke will help you a whole lot more than Matthew will in this one. What's an evidence that they had real faith? They were willing to take apart the roof of somebody else's house. I want to take a little time here to talk to you about the fact that the Bible says your actions will show whether or not you really have faith. It's easy to say you have faith. It's easy to talk about faith. It's easy to say, well, we got to live by faith. It's easy to say, you know, we got to trust God. Well, you know what? Speaking it's one thing. Actually doing it is another. And these people's faith was so real. They so believed that Jesus was willing to do this and going to do this and able to do this that they actually tore apart someone's house. I remember in seminary, the Greek professor teaching us from this passage. And actually in the Greek, it says this, they unroofed the roof. Can you imagine being the homeowner at this time? We just had our house roof replaced this couple weeks ago or a week ago. We just had our roof replaced. Can you even imagine? Someone taking the tiles off your roof and lowering somebody through there. Go to James chapter 2. This section of the book of James caused the people who were in charge of deciding what the canon of Scripture was going to be to almost not put the book of James in the book, uh, or the Bible, in the canon of Scripture because they thought he was disagreeing with Paul, where Paul said we're saved by grace and not of works through faith. But in James chapter 2, look at verses 14 through 26. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works or evidence of his actions? Can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I mean, in other words, you say you have faith, that's great. How are you going to show me you have faith? 
he said, then he says this, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Remember what we talked about? It's possible to believe something and doesn't mean you're saved. See, you can believe that God will save sins or save sinners and forgive sins. But until you ask him to do it in real faith, you can believe it all you want. How many people have we dealt with over the years? And you might have heard of these. I know as pastors, I hear this all the time. We hear people say, I know Jesus will forgive them, but I've done something worse. He'll never forgive me. They believe that he's able to forgive sins, but not enough for themselves. He then goes on in verse 20 and says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Look at verses 15 through 20. Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. It says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Here he says when you're watching out for false teachers, don't listen to what they say. Watch their actions. I, for years as a pastor, I learned that when people love to lie to the pastor. They want you to believe something about them that's really not true. I mean... It was funny. One time I was pastor in Chicago and there was a, a mother and a daughter who were co-teaching a Sunday school class. And I knew they didn't like me. They always pretended that they did. And one Sunday I got there early and they were in their classroom and they didn't know I was in the building. And I was walking down the hall and they were having roast preacher in their classroom. <laughs> and I heard it. And I stood out in the hall for a while just listening. And then finally at a really opportune time, I just stepped in and said, Hey, good morning, ladies. How are you doing this morning? And they went into, Oh, pastor, we're so glad you're here. We were just talking about how much we love you and all this stuff. And all I did was smile. I learned over the years. I, you know what? You lie to me, I'm going to hold you to it. I'm going to act like what you, I'm going to act, act, expect you to do what you say. Because actually that's how God is. We say all sorts all the time. But do you do it? And folks, saying you believe, saying you trust God is one thing. But you know what? God is going to put you in situations over and over and over to take you deeper to show you, yeah, you do kind of trust me, but you don't. He's not mad. He knows your thoughts. He knows the level of your faith. And he's trying to take us deeper, is he not? There's a level of faith that's needed for salvation, but there's more faith. The Bible says we live by faith. Daily, we're supposed to be growing in our faith. 
And don't just assume that you've got all the faith you need. No, God says, I want you to trust me more. And that's why he's going to continually put you in situations where even though you love to say, oh, I trust God. And he'll go, yeah, we'll see. But not in a bad way. Because if you're willing to say, you know what, I do trust you, but I'm a little bit nervous in this area. God then says, okay, good. I've known that all along because I know the level of your faith and I know your thoughts. Now that you've acknowledged it, I can take you deeper. All right, do you understand? Don't be afraid of the fact that God knows your thoughts and he knows your heart and he knows the level of your faith. I would just challenge you to not try to drum up more faith. You can't. You can say, Lord, show me what level of faith that I have and increase my faith. Yes, Becky, go ahead. Why if a man is wanted him to heal his child? He said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I'm not kidding you. I've said that over the years. I think that's probably one of the best prayers in the whole Bible. I believe. Help my unbelief. There's a, I need more faith and I need you to give it. I love it. I love it. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. By the way, God's going to ask you to take baby steps. He's going to test you and see if you'll trust him a little bit here, but then he's going to ask you to trust him a little bit more and test a little bit more and trust him a little bit more. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 3 through 11. Listen closely. Written to Christians. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Did you catch that? Supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins." Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, they will richly be provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, look, you say you have faith. Let it be demonstrated by your actions. Let it be demonstrated by your life. And so what I want to challenge you to do is to say, Lord, where are you asking me to trust you more? Where are you asking me to faith you more? And he may be asking you in the level of your giving to the church that you go to. And the fact that maybe some of you haven't even begun to just do the simple littlest level of tithing. Jim, we're not under the law anymore. I didn't say you're under the law, but I could take the time to show you that giving 10% of your income to God actually came before the law. Joseph, Jacob said to God after he met him there at the, at the Jacob's ladder, I'm going to give you a tenth of everything I have. Abraham offered tithes to Melchizedek. This is before the law even came. So don't get into this, all this stuff of, well, we're not under the law. We don't have to tithe. Folks, if you want to read your Bibles and be honest, actually, those of us who are in Christ, Jesus, we've already seen it in Matthew, when he preached on the Sermon on the Mount, said, the law says, but I say, and he added to it every time. You want to be in the new age, if you will, in the church? Give more than 10%. The Bible talks about tithes and offerings. And some of you, God might say to you, I want you to test me in this. Isn't that what he says in the book of Malachi? 
See if I won't open up the doors of heaven. Some of you just need to even just start with the baby steps of giving 10%. Watch what he does. Folks, I'm telling you, my wife and I have lived it through our whole lives. We're experiencing it now. The more we give, the more he gives. And, but he's going to take you deeper and deeper. And we could have never done like we do now. We could have never given like that back then. We didn't have that much faith. But he's increased our faith over the years as he's proven himself over and over. So what is he asking you to trust him? Is it forgiveness? Is it in a job change? Is it in a, uh, he's taking you through a time period where you don't know how you're going to pay the bill. How is he asking you to trust him? Don't come up with the plan and say, oh, I'm going to do this. No, no, no. Where has he asked you to faith him? Faith can only begin once he's spoken. You don't set the, the test. That's testing God. You don't say, okay, God, if you do this, then I'll trust you. No, 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 no. You don't, you don't set the test. God gets to set the test. And he does say, test me. But only when he is the one who determines the test. But you say you have faith. I'm just going to tip you off. God's going to say, we'll see. And he ain't mad, but he's going to keep pushing you over that next little test. All right, go ahead. Exactly. He's the author and the finisher. So he was the one that gave us enough faith to even get saved. And he's the one that's going to increase our faith. But he's going to be continually putting us in those situations where our faith gets stretched. Oh, be careful, though, what you're trusting in. If you think you're okay because your faith is in what you do. Remember, that's one of the dangers of James chapter 2. You say you have faith, prove it by your works. There's a lot of people that think they're okay because they do such good things. Whoa, 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 whoa. You've just put your faith in your works. Do you see the balancing act here? You do what you do because you trust God. If you trust you're okay because you do what you do, your faith is in your works. Don't put your faith in your works. You're not saved by your works. Your faith has to be in God. All right? Go to Matthew 7, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, these people put their faith in what they did. I'm not saying prove your faith by doing things and then trusting you're okay because you did them. Your faith will be demonstrated by your actions, not by your words. But don't put your faith in your action. All right? Now, the Pharisees were upset because Jesus forgave sins. And by the way, if Jesus weren't God, they'd be right. Because only the one sinned against has the right to forgive. If you do something against me, and then your wife Amber says, I forgive you. That's not how it works. You know what I'm saying? The one sinned against is the one that has the prerogative to forgive. So the, if Jesus weren't God... The Pharisees are right in this instance by saying, wait a minute, how dare he forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And they're right. Only God can forgive sins. But they didn't know who was standing there. He had the authority to forgive sins because he was the one that had been sinned against. What did David say when he committed that sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51? Against you and you only have I sinned. He knew that all sin was against God, against his law, against his plan. 
And he didn't trust God. He didn't faith God in that area. And he sought forgiveness from God. Now, go to Mark chapter 2 and look at verses 5 through 7. Mark brings this out real well. In Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Matthew doesn't bring that out. They just were upset of their thoughts. They just thought he was blaspheming, as Matthew says. Mark brings it out a little bit more. Their issue was, only God can forgive sins. And so then Jesus says to them, Which is easier to say to this guy and do? Say to someone, sins are forgiven, or tell someone to get up and walk? Of course, they would all answer that question. Well, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. Blah, blah, blah. It's harder to tell the guy, get up and walk. And so Jesus says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I'm going to demonstrate the authority that I have. Man, get up, take your bed, go home. And in front of all those people, he gets up, takes his mat, walks out of the house. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, though. Which was easier for Jesus to do? I didn't ask you which was easier to say. The question he asked them was, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to tell somebody to get up and walk? And their answer was, it will be definitely easier to say your sins are forgiven because who's going to know until the guy dies? And then secondly, they would say it's, easy, it's harder to say get up and walk because we can now watch whether or not this guy's going to be able to get up and walk. That's harder to do. But I'm going to ask you a question. Which was easier to do? I'm sorry? Which was easier to do for Jesus? Get up and walk was easier for Jesus to do. Folks, don't miss this for a second. It was not easy for Jesus to forgive his sins. See, the question he said to them was, which is easier to say? You guys are just thinking that I'm just saying words with no authority. Who are you to say that? You're blaspheming. You're not God. So that you know that I am God, I'll do the harder thing in your eyes. Tell the man to get up and walk. But I also want to bring out to you, don't think for a second that it was easy for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven. Uh Uh-uh. Go with me to um, Isaiah chapter 53. It's one thing for Jesus to say his sins were forgiven, but Jesus also knew that he had to fully act out what it was that needed to be done in order for sins to be forgiven. Listen to Isaiah 53. We're going to read verses 4 through 6 and then verses 11 and 12. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Good verses 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By the way, let me read that again. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
Yes, in their mind, it was easier for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven and harder for him to say rise and walk. But let me just tell you, it was easy for Jesus to say rise and walk and hard for him to forgive his sins. He went through a lot through for, to forgive what you and I have done. Don't think it was easy for Jesus just to forgive our sins. Let's go over now to Matthew chapter 9. Look at verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth or tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We're going to spend the rest of our time tonight dealing with this section of Scripture. Now, as we look at Mark and Luke's account of this next episode, we're going to learn something interesting as well. I think it's valuable for you when you study the Scriptures, especially when you're reading the Gospels. Take the time to look at the other accounts. Because if you just look at one gospel account, you miss out on so much. And you could build a theology that's actually lacking because there are some other accounts that actually bring some things out that you wouldn't notice. And I want you to see something different in Mark and Luke's account. And I want to see if any of you caught it. All right. Go to Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. I'm not going to tell you what's different. I want to see if you guys notice it. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And he as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Go to Luke chapter 5. Look at verses 27 through 32. Luke 5, 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Did anybody catch the difference between Matthew's account and Mark and Luke's account? Yeah! Matthew called himself Matthew. But Mark and Luke call him Levi. Oh, there's something cool here. Matthew is his new name. Go with me to Mark chapter 3. Uh, 13. Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. In both Mark and Luke's account, they call Levi by the name he had when he met Jesus. Matthew calls himself by the name that Jesus gave him. In Mark chapter 13, look at verses 13 through 19. 
and I'm sorry, it was Mark 3. I wrote 13 in my Bible, and I don't, it threw me all off. Mark, I mean, not my Bible, in my notes. Mark chapter 3. Take a pen real quick and make that change so I don't do that again tomorrow night. Mark 3, verses 13 through 19. Look at what it says. And he went up on a mountain, and he called to him those he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelfth, Simon, to whom he gave the name, gave the name Peter, James and the son, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boagenes, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, some of you would say, okay, what do we, where, where, where do we see this? Well, didn't Mark, just in chapter 2, call him Levi? How come Mark calls him Matthew here now? Because that's his new name. We see Jesus has given everybody new names. Simon, whom we called Peter, and James and John, he called them the sons of thunder. And these are their new names. You see it again in Luke chapter 6. Remember how Luke 5 showed us that uh, he called him Levi? But in Luke 6, look at verses 12 through 16. In those days, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Here again, Luke calls him Matthew. But earlier, in just the previous chapter, he called him Levi. I love the fact that when Matthew writes about himself, he calls himself by his new name. And I want to talk to you real quick about that. When you became a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, just like when you were born, your parents named you. When you were born again, Jesus gave you a new name. The Bible is very, very clear that when we get saved, he gives us a new name. That's why he told Peter when he first met him, you are Simon, but one day you will be called Peter. And then, of course, as you know, later on when he says, who do men say that I am and who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, you are Peter now. Folks, all of us have been given a new name and God sees us as the new creation. Even as he's working on us, as we've been talking about, even though there's areas of us that he's stretching and trying to pull out and increase our faith and to trust it more and get to know him more, he still sees the finished product. And Matthew, I love the fact that he saw himself as the finished product and he called himself by his new name. And folks, some of you out there, unfortunately, beat yourself up more than you should and more than Jesus wants you to. You're listening to the enemy who says you're no good or God's upset with you or God's displeased and all. Listen, your father loves you. He knows everything about you from the beginning until the day of your death. He knows how you're going to finish. He knows if you're going to finish strong or you're going to finish weak. He knows if you'll die for him tomorrow or if you'll deny him tomorrow. There's nothing that's hidden from God. He already knows your whole story. And guess what? He likes you. So you need to see yourself as Jesus does. The fact that he's going to finish what he started, like you said earlier, Sheila. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, another passage of Scripture we can probably all quote, but many of us don't really believe it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 17. 
verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You've heard me share this with you before, and I love to share it with you again. Remember how I just touched on the fact that he sees Peter and he calls him, your name is Simon, but one day you will be Peter. And then later on, when Peter makes his profession of faith, he says, you are Peter. But then later on, right before the cross, he says to Peter, calls him by his old name, Simon, Simon. Satan is asked to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for all y'all, Simon. But sorry, I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Peter goes, you don't know about the rest of these bums. I'm willing to go to death in prison for you. And don't miss this. Jesus says this, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny you know me three times. Did you catch that? Called him by his old name to get his attention because he's going to act like the old guy for a little bit. But when Jesus pointed out the specific of his sin, when he points out and says, you are going to deny you even know me three times, he calls him by his new name. He goes from Simon, Simon to, I tell you, Peter. Don't miss that. He sees the finished product. You're going to be all right. You're going to come out okay. Yeah, there's a time or two I've got to work on you a little bit. But I'm not mad. I see the finished product. Folks, and if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It's now being worked out as we trust him on a daily basis, as we work with him and he works with us, as we allow him to do his work in our life. That's why in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, it says, Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You see how the farmer waits for the early and the latter rains. Don't miss that. Godly fruit is only produced over time. And many of us look at ourselves and say, well, I don't think I'm ever going to get there. I don't think I'll ever. Oh, that's not how God sees you. And he's not in a hurry because he's patient. He's patient. We actually need to see everyone as Jesus did. Listen, not just believers, but unbelievers. Go to, here in 2 Corinthians, start in verse, chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Some of your translations say compels us. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for, them, for him whom for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. In other words, we used to think he was just a human. We don't do that anymore. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God's making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We don't see anybody in the world. We shouldn't see anybody in the world as humans anymore. <clears throat> Excuse me. We shouldn't look at their doing good or doing bad or whether or not they're living the life you think they ought to live. They're either what? In Christ or not in Christ. If they're in Christ, 
They're a new creation, and the one who began a good work is going to finish it. And we don't think that, that we shouldn't think that God's impotent in finishing what he started. We shouldn't think that he needs our help. How many times have we dealt with in the church Christians spending so much time poking out all the other stuff or pointing out all the other stuff that everybody else should be doing? If she's a real Christian, I don't think she would be acting like that. And rah, rah, rah. You know, in that passage I quoted to you about be patient until the coming of the Lord, it actually goes on and says, you be patient, establish your heart because the Lord is at hand. And then it says, don't grumble against one another, brothers, and don't judge one another, for the judge, the real judge, is at the door. So, folks, we should no longer see each other as human, either in Christ or outside of Christ. And if they're outside of Christ, they need Christ. And how often do Christians today act like the Pharisees? How often do Christians today look at people in the world who don't know Jesus? And they look down their noses. I can't believe they're so wicked. They're so vile. Look at the horrible things they're doing. I can't believe they're looting like that. Listen to me, folks. They don't know God. They're doing the best they can. Folks, if there was no God, I too would live for self. Every man for himself. Survival of the fittest. I would look out for number one. The mindset that they all have. Because in their mind, there's no God. But unfortunately, instead of being ambassadors of Christ, who are supposed to go out into the world and eat with sinners and love the people that don't know God, we look like the Pharisees and say, well, those are bad people. I'm not going to hang out with them. I'm going to hang out with the religious people like me who wear a tie on Sunday, sing out of the hymn book. And don't get me started. <laughs> go to Matthew chapter 9. Or have to use the version of the Bible I use. Ooh. Go to Matthew 9. Look at verses 35 through 37. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What was Jesus' attitude when he saw all the people who were lost? And compassion on them. Why? They were like sheep without a shepherd. By the way, sheep without a shepherd, how well are they going to do? You know anything about sheep? They're dumb. They're going to they're gonna just run around. They're going to get themselves in trouble. They're going to fall down, not be able to get out. If they fall into a ravine, they're going to they're gonna die. And if there's no shepherd, and unfortunately, these not only were sheep without a shepherd, the shepherds that were showing up were more interested in themselves. Go to Mark chapter 6. Look at verses 30 through 34. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. He went, when he, this is Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Again, another story. We see that he had compassion on them because he saw them for what they really were. We no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. We shouldn't regard anyone according to the flesh. 
They're like sheep without a shepherd. Oh, by the way, these terrorists that are out there to kill you, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Have compassion. That's why Stephen, as they were stoning him, could not go, God's taken names. But honestly, have the heart of the Father. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Don't hold this sin against them. Why? Because he saw them as Jesus did. Folks, and it's high time, those of us who are truly saved, give evidence to our faith. Listen closely. It's high time that those of us who are truly born again give evidence that we truly have Christ within us and we have a compassion for those who are outside of Christ. We never approve of their sin. We never act like their sin is okay. Jesus said, go and sin no more as he dealt with sinners. But he, you know what? They knew he loved them. He had compassion on them. Go to Mark chapter 8. You're in chapter 6. Go to chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 3. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Man, I love that passage. Folks, you know God knows whether or not you've eaten? Do you know he knows whether or not you've been able to pay the last bill? Do you know he knows whether or not you got an oil change due? Do you know he knows all that stuff? And he cares. He really cares. My question is, do we see people like Jesus? Do we see ourselves like Jesus? I love how Matthew called himself by his new name when he listed his encounter with Jesus. Go to Luke chapter 7. Look at verses 11 through 17. Luke 7, 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. What does that mean, her situation is now? She's done. She's, she's got nothing now. Her, she's a widow. And her only possessions were what her husband had. And she has a son that could take care of her. And now he's dead. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak to Jesus and gave him to his mother. Why did Jesus stop this funeral procession? Because he knew and he cared. Folks, the Bible says he keeps track of all the tears that we cried in our lives. He holds them in a jar, the Bible says. He knows the number of our hairs on our head. There's nothing about us he doesn't know. And he loves us. And he sent his son to die for us. And we should, those of us who have entered into a relationship with him, if we let him live his life through us, we should have the same heart toward the people around us, Christians and non-Christians. As Christians, when I see you act not like Jesus, I should be reminded that you're in Christ and he'll finish what he started and you're a new creation. And just because I didn't see it today doesn't mean I have to judge you or label you. And I'm not going to even deal with you about it until the Father tells me to, because the Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, if you see your brother caught in a transgression, not do one, Caught in it, snared. You who are spiritual, 
restore them gently. But you better check yourself first before you do, the scripture says. Folks, if we spent less time looking at everybody else and more time just walking with the Lord, he'll start to all of a sudden let us see people the way he sees them. And we'll see the world in the same way. By the way, this isn't the New Testament God. This is the Old Testament as well. Uh, go real quickly. We've got a little bit of time, and we're going hit, to hit it fast. Uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, I want you to see that people say, well, the New Testament God is compassionate. Jesus showed up and showed the soft side of God. No, the soft side of God's been there all along. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36, 11 through 16. Is that 2 Chronicles 36, 36, verses 11 through 16. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, his God. He didn't humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Yes, he did bring judgment and we see that. But it was, was it right away? No, it was after hundreds of years. Folks, we see that Jesus, which is God, told Abraham the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached its full measure yet. So I'm not going to send your descendants into that land to judge them until that time. It, by the way, it was 400 years later that the judgment came. If you think he gave the lost world of the Amorites in 400 years, don't you think he's patient towards you and I? He's compassionate. In Jonah, I'm not going to have you turn there, but in Jonah chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 3, 10 through 4, 11. If you look at that story, God forgives Nineveh because of Jonah's preaching. And then Jonah goes and sits up on top of the hill to watch God's judgment fall. And God doesn't judge him. And Jonah's mad. And he says to God, I knew you were going to do that. That's why back in town when you sent me to go here and I went the other way, I knew you were going to do this and I didn't want to do it because you're loving, merciful, compassionate, slow to anger. And God has this plant grow up and give him a little bit of shade. And he says, hey, that's, that's good. That's good. I'm glad you're making me comfortable. And uh, then the next day, God has a worm come or, and eat it. And it doesn't last 24 hours. And now the Bible says Jonah's so mad at God, he's mad enough to die. And God then says this. You go double check. He says, you have pity on that plant that didn't even last 24 hours. Shouldn't I have compassion on 120,000 people in Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left? And much cattle? Man, I still haven't finished meditating on that. I don't know why God brought the cattle out as well. But God says, I care about everything. Folks, he's been that way all along. I'm going to ask you, do we look at the world at all like Jesus does? Or do we resemble the Jesus or the Pharisees when they look at us? When the world looks at us, do they see Jesus or do they see the Pharisees? Now, lastly, as you saw, knowing the sick condition of man and the mercy and compassion and purposes of God will better understand what Jesus said when he said he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. There's no one righteous apart from God's grace. You all know that, right? Romans chapter 3, very clearly in 10 and following, says there's no one righteous, not even one, no one who seeks God. 
But keep in mind, it's God who opens the eyes of the hearts of the sinners and shows them their guilt. That's John chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, actually in following. When the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to open their eyes to their sin, their need of righteousness and the coming judgment. Our job is to love them and lovingly point them to the only one who can help them. That's all we're to do. The love of Christ that we have received should compel us to see people as Jesus sees them. Either they're in Christ or they're not. So if they're in Christ, they're what? They're a new creation. They're Matthew, not Levi. Even though they might look like Levi a day or two. They're Peter, not Simon, even though they look like Simon a day or two. If they're outside of Christ, what are they? They're lost, but they're sheep without a shepherd, and they need him. They need him. Folks, my prayer is that your real faith will be seen by the people around you, by your actions. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.